Welcome Highland Community Church and those outside of Highland that are joining us today. May we have a wonderful God-centered Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Philippians, which is in the New Testament. Today we're in Philippians chapter 1, the last part of verse 18 all the way to 26. Philippians 1, the last part of 18 to 26. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we thank you for this day. We pray, Father, that this day, like all the days, we would dedicate to you, that we would live for you, that we would communion with you, that you would allow your inspired and errant word to penetrate our hearts. Father, we pray that uh, we would not just be hearers of the word only, but doers as well, and that your word would be a double-edged sword and it would divide our hearts and our lives that we might know what to think, how to act, what to believe, the attitudes and motives behind our actions. May they be honoring to you. Guide our time, we ask. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Some of you perhaps have had the privilege of visiting London. If you've ever been to London... Certainly you have seen Westminster Abbey and maybe you have joined the 1 million people every year who pay 21 pounds, about $26 to walk into the Abbey to see the rich artifacts, to see the 3,300 people who have been buried or commemorated in the Abbey. As you know, the Abbey is one of the great Gothic cathedrals throughout Europe. The Abbey, along with St. Paul's Cathedral, is one of the two most famous churches in England. The Abbey is the Coronation Church. In fact, uh, it was built originally back in 960, but as it stands today, it's from King Henry III, 1245. And since then, 39 kings and queens have been coronated in Westminster Abbey. That even includes Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning monarch. She was coronated in 1952. She's been on the throne longer than almost anyone. Soon she will be the longest reigning monarch in English history, 68 years to this point. She's 94 years young. The Abbey is not only an incredible museum, but it's also a church. Unfortunately, as a church, it has very little influence in England or anywhere in the world for that matter. If you've had the privilege of going to a service in Westminster Abbey, I've been there both for a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night vespers, which is formal hymns and readings, you know that the attendance at the Abbey is very low. In fact, on Sunday morning, in the service I was a part of, it was under 200 in the Vespers service, it was under 100. That was actually true also for St. Paul's Cathedral, where it had similar attendance. But I'm thankful that God's church is not a building, something to remember during COVID-19, but God's church is the people who have prayed by faith to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Now, if you've been to Westminster Abbey, and you've been in the QE, the line, and you've waited, and you paid your 21 pounds, your $26. You have been in that QE going back and forth, and it's a long line, sometimes hours long. And you look at the western wall, you see 10 very large statues. 
those 10 statues of our martyrs of the 21st century. The commonality is all 10 were martyred for the faith, but they come from different continents and different Christian backgrounds, but all were martyred in the 20th century under Nazism, communism, socialism, or some form of religious persecution. Now, if you look at those 10 statutes, you'll recognize some of them, others perhaps not. For instance, you'll know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Protestant preacher in the United States, a leader in the civil rights movement, and he was brutally assassinated, I think for his faith and for his cause, in 1968. You might recognize Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the author of The Cost of Discipleship. He is a man that was a Lutheran pastor who was part of the confessing movement that stood against Nazism while living inside Germany during the reign of the Third Reich. Because of his faith, he was arrested and eventually taken to a Flossburg concentration camp. My wife and I have been there. And in April of 1945, he was hung for his faith. One of the statutes you may not recognize is Kamar Zia. Kamar was born in 1929, and in her late teens, her family moved to the new country called Pakistan, formed in 1947. She was part of a Muslim family, and when she moved to Pakistan, there was a Christ-centered school, and her parents, wanting her to be educated, allowed her to enroll in a Christian school. And while reading Isaiah, Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11 and 53, she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So here we have Kamar, part of a Muslim family in Pakistan, and she is a Christ follower. This, of course, alarmed her family, and they began to take steps for an arranged marriage to an older Orthodox Muslim man. Well, when Kamar realized this, she fled. She left. She went to another part of the country. She renamed herself Esther John. She began to serve among orphans and in a Christian missionary hospital. And literally, she began to evangelize entire villages and multitudes came to Christ. Well, in 1961, she was brutally murdered. Although nobody was charged for the crime, it seems very clear from the historical evidence that her own brothers found her. And because of her faith in Jesus, and because she told others about faith in Jesus, she was a martyr for the faith. So as you stand in the queue and you see these 10 martyrs, you might ask yourself, how many martyrs have there been in the Christian faith? Because all of those 10 are from the 20th century. Well, historians tell us that from the year 33 AD to the year 1899, a lot of centuries there, right? In those years, about 14 million known martyrs for the faith of Christ. And then from 1900 to 1999, the 20th century, 
we have an additional 26 million martyrs. That's why the 20th century is called by some historians the age of the martyr, especially of the Christian church. 40 million, and of course there's many unknown beyond that, but 40 million people, women, men, children, have been martyred for the faith of Jesus Christ that historians are aware of. And I think each of these martyrs understood what Paul wrote when he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Think about that. For me to live is Christ. It's advantageous for the kingdom of Christ. It will be used by God, empowered by his spirit to advance the kingdom here on earth. If I'm living for Christ, it will advance the kingdom. But when I go home to glory, to die is gain because I get more Christ. That's what Paul is going to write today. I want to pick up in our text and I want to read from Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in the last part of verse 18 and then read to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As is of my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. That is, I'm hard-pressed between wanting to live and serve Christ on earth or to die and go home and see Christ in person. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We've already talked twice about the setting, so we're not going to spend a lot of time, but let me remind us of the setting of the book of Philippians written in AD 61. The setting is really four years, three months that precedes Paul sitting down to write this letter. The setting goes back to Israel, northern Israel, near Tel Aviv, on the Mediterranean. There Paul is incarcerated for his faith in Jesus Christ. He's been telling people that salvation is only in Jesus. It's only when you, I, we come to the end of ourselves, we confess, we agree with God that we are sinners, we admit our sin, we ask for forgiveness, we accept what Jesus did on the cross. He died as a payment of our sin. He rose again as evidence of life after grave. By faith, we believe in Jesus. We ask him to be our savior, to be our Lord, to empower us to live for his glory. Paul's been preaching that gospel message. He's been planting churches. And because of that, he ends up in the slammer in Judea. And we know he's there for about two years. It doesn't appear that his case is coming before a magistrate anytime too soon. And so finally, as a Roman citizen, he's a Jew, but he's also a citizen of Rome from Tarsus. He does what a Roman can do. He appeals for a court case in front of Caesar. 
and so under guard he is put on a ship. We know it is an Alexandrian grain ship, not with a deep V-haul, but it's a flat grain ship. We know more about them than we have artifacts of them because almost all of them sunk because they weren't very stable. And he and 276 people take the 1,450-mile trip from uh, where he is in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv area, all the way to Rome. But they don't get there. A storm comes up. He's shipwrecked on the island of Malta. You remember this? It's late fall. It's cold. They finally get on to the beach. They start a bonfire, and he's bit by a thurion. A viper, of all things, bites his hand. And then he gets well. And three months later, still under guard, he gets on another ship in the spring, and he goes to Rome. And we would expect that he is going to have a court case, but he doesn't. And he's chained between several of the Praetorian guards, the Green Berets, those nine or 10,000 of Rome's elite. And during that time, he pens four letters, four epistles of scripture. And he's telling others about Christ. And believers are becoming bold in their faith because they see the life of Paul. That then is our setting. And with this setting, how does Paul begin? Yes, yes. And I will rejoice. And we say, really? Really? You're, you're going to talk about rejoicing? You've been in prison. You've been shipwrecked. You've bitten by a viper. Now you're chained between two praetorian guards. And you're going to talk about rejoicing? And he's waiting for a trial in front of Nero. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've talked a little bit about Nero and and one very astute Highland attender sent me an email and said, you know, I wonder if Nero wasn't much worse after this period of time than before. Now understand that there are three narratives that are out there about Nero. If you read European literature, then Nero isn't that bad. In fact, if you read European literature, the Inquisition wasn't that bad. The Crusaders weren't that bad. Almost nobody died in the Colosseum. The Tower of London had 26 or less people die. Do you get the idea of how European literature has revised history? So that's one narrative. Nero's not that bad because European literature does not paint any of their low spots with dark colors. A more popular painting of Nero is that he wasn't a bad guy or really wasn't a terrible guy until somewhere around AD 64 when he became deranged and then took his life in AD 68 through suicide. So really during those last four years, he really became a deranged man. That's a popular uh, view of Nero. But most scholars have a different view. Most scholars read Suetonius and Tacitus and Dio Cassius, the three great historians of first century Rome, and they note that Nero, though certainly escalating his violence and certainly escalating his violence against Christians, was actually violent from the day he began to rule to the day that he took his own life in AD 68. In fact, they note things like his closest advisor was Agrippina the Younger, 
Agrippina the younger is who he turned to for advice. But then he began to fear that Agrippina might be a little too powerful, so he put his closest advisor to death. Except Agrippina is his mother. Who murders one's mother? In fact, if you look at the totality of Nero's life, there appears to be a number of attempts on his life by bureaucrats, and we're told by some of the historians the reason is because he constantly is murdering bureaucrats throughout his entire reign. He will end up having his throne given to Galba, who becomes emperor, which is why he will take his own life rather than be tortured. The truth is this. Nero does up the ante of violence throughout his life, but he's been violent from the very beginning. He's committed a number of murders throughout the the entirety of his reign. In fact, we mentioned last week that uh, he's probably the one that set fire to Rome and burned down 10 of the 14 sectors of his own city. Well, some ancient historians suggest, they don't say this as fact, but they say this as the likelihood. He played the fiddle as he watched from the capital line over the city. He played the fiddle watching his own city burn and people die. That's narrow. That's who Paul appeals to. And what does the text says? Yes! And I will rejoice. You see, Paul understands something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Happiness comes from happenings. We all want happiness. We all want happenings. Nothing wrong with that. I want happiness. I want happenings. I'm not denigrating that. Happiness comes from happenings. But joy comes from a relationship with Jesus. Joy comes in spite of happiness. Joy comes because we know if we prayed by faith to receive Christ and accepted his death as the payment of our sin, we know that we belong to the Lord, that nothing can change that, nothing can take it. And when our life is over, God will take us to a place that will never know COVID-19 a place of perfection, a place of glory, a place where Christ is. And we will spend eternity with God in a place of perfection. And that causes joy in spite of happenings. It causes joy in spite of COVID-19. It causes joy in, in spite of some of you who have parents you can't visit. Just just breaks my heart. Causes joy when I talk to grandparents who can't hug their grandkids. It just grieves my heart. It still causes joy when when some of you have been furloughed. Others have already lost your job. And I grieve with you. But there still can be joy in Jesus. It causes joy when the market goes up and down and up and down. There's still joy for those of you who have had your college careers, your high school careers cut short, or graduates who 
have longed for so many important events and some of them aren't going to happen and I grieve for you and I hurt for you. But there still can be joy. Even if the happiness from happenings isn't happening, there can be joy in Jesus because COVID-19 can't take that away. It can't take away our assurance. It can't take away our conviction. It can't take away Jesus who is closer than a brother and who prepares a place for us in eternity that will be COVID-free forever. And that's why Paul is able to say, and yes, and yes, I rejoice. In fact, Paul says that while he's here, here on earth, he not only wants to rejoice, he wants to live out his faith for God's glory. Let me read verses 19 and 20 again. Listen to God's word. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is a little confused. You got to read tension into the text. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if he's going to die. If you don't read tension in the text, you're not going to get the text. It's not until the end of chapter one, as God's spirit is leading him to write, that he realizes that yes, he is going to live, but there's tension He's not sure, is he going to live and continue to serve Christ? Or when by appealing to Nero, is Nero going to take his life? And he says, what his greatest concern is, is that he honors the Lord. That he not be ashamed. That he bring honor to God. Do you hear the heart of Paul? He's on death row. He's had four years and three months of being cocooned, staying at home, home in place, it's been miserable. And he says, yes, I rejoice. And then he says, you know, I'm gonna go to narrow. And the first thing he doesn't ask for is startling. What would you ask for? Like that I'm not beheaded, that I don't become a human torch, that narrow doesn't martyr me, torture me. But that's really not what he says in 19 and 20. He talks about deliverance, but he says, whether in life or by death, I may not shame the gospel. That's Paul's greatest concern. His greatest concern is that when he gets in the presence of Nero, he testifies about Christ. His greatest concern is when he gets in the presence of Nero, he has the opportunity to say, Emperor, it is not about faith in the Roman pantheon. It's not about faith in the Greek pantheon. It's not about faith in all of these false gods. I can stand before you, Nero, because I know whatever you do to me, it cannot take my joy. It cannot take my salvation. It cannot take my future, my hope. And so Paul's greatest concern is that he doesn't cower that he testifies to Christ. Do you remember what Paul wrote? It was three years earlier. He is the author of Romans, guided by God's spirit. He's longing to get to Rome, not as a prisoner. He wants to go and preach. He finally gets to Rome. He's going to face Nero. And these are the words he wrote just a few years earlier. He said, for I am not ashamed. You know this is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. Paul wrote those words, inspired God by God's spirit, and now he's living out his faith. And he's saying in verses 19 and 20, when I come before Nero, what I'm really most concerned about is that I don't shame the gospel, that I don't peter out, that I don't ignore what Nero needs to hear. He needs to hear about a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's Paul who also writes 2 Corinthians 5, 20, one of my favorite verses in scripture. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, we beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the gospel through us. God has assigned us the job to tell others about Jesus Christ. And during this COVID-19 situation, who do you know that needs to hear about Christ? What coworker in person on a Zoom call needs to hear about Christ? We have the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. We don't want to shrink back. The truth is this. There are many people right now that are open to the gospel that were not open before. I've talked to a number of individuals who have taken those devotions we're writing on Philippians. My coworkers are writing, they're doing such a great job. And they not only used them for themselves, they passed them on to family members and coworkers. I've heard that over and over again. I know of one gal in the church a few weeks ago she got 10 copies, DVDs of the message so she could hand them out to others. I don't know anything about technology. On staff, we've got the three stooges. I'm just gonna tell you right out. It's Dave Mahler, Dan McDonald, and Jeff Hines. Three stooges. We can't do anything technologically. And I understand that somehow technologically, we know how many hits there are to our website and to our teaching. I don't know anything about that. I don't care about numbers, so I don't even ask. I have no idea. But a few weeks ago, one of the people who was not among the Three Stooges said to me, we had about 7,000 hits to our teaching. That tells me something. Now, now, in fairness, like a dozen of those are my mom and dad because, you know, they're trying to hear all this and they're in a place where there's not really good internet and they have the technological capabilities of their son. So they start something and it stops and they have to hit it again and they start something and it stops. You know, I, I inherited this from my parents. So we have five stooges, those three and mom and dad. But, but all of these hits tell me that this is a time period in which people are hungry for the gospel. And Paul says, you know, this is a terrible time in my life. The happenings are not happening. The happiness is not there, but I have joy in Jesus Christ and I have a commission. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. And he takes the opportunity. He is most concerned, not that he lives, not that he dies. He's most concerned that he testifies to Jesus. He testifies to Jesus. And if he's going to live, he's going to continue to testify to Jesus. Isn't that what he says in verses 22 to 25? 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. May these verses reflect our hearts. Paul prefers to go home to glory. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul prefers to go home to glory. He's not talking about suicide. Right now, there's a high level of anxiety, a high level of loneliness, a high level of depression. And you need to know that suicide is never the answer. It is never, never, never the answer. It is never God's will. If you are feeling like taking your life, you call me or you call the authorities. He's not talking about suicide. Your life matters. You, me, we are made in the imago gay in the image of God. He created this in our mother's womb and it is never our right to take our life, never. He's not talking about suicide. But what he's saying is this. I love this world. And if I'm on this world, I'm going to serve God on this world. But I'm not so attached to this world that I don't know that something's better. And it's that world. Can't wait to get home. Have you ever known Christ followers like that? Somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a lot of years. And their, their physical abilities, maybe even their mental abilities are, are starting to fade away. And they say, you know. I'm just ready to go home for Jesus. I'm ready to go see Jesus. I have a dear pastor friend who has a mother who was married for many years to her husband who was a pastor who's gone home to Jesus. And she's starting to lose some of her physical and mental capacities. And and my pastor friend calls her often. And she says, I'm ready to go. Why am I still here? And with great wisdom, my pastor friend says, Mom, you're here to do the work of the Lord. And she says, what's the work of the Lord? The mighty work for you, Mom, is to pray. To pray for your children, to pray for your grandchildren. That's the mighty work that God has for you. And that's the attitude of Paul. For me to live as Christ, when I'm here on this earth, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then when God calls me home, I'm going home to glory. To die is gain. As I think about this, there's just three short summary thoughts that come to my mind. The first summary thought is this. It is right to both love living here and to long to go there. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Frankly, some of us love this world too much and we don't long enough to go home to glory. And some dismiss this world too much and bide our time without serving the Lord while we're here because we're ready to go there. 
It's a both and. For me to live is Christ. It's to advance the kingdom of Christ. And to die is gain. I want both. While I'm here on this earth, I want to love this earth. I want to love the people on this earth. And I want to advance the kingdom of God on this earth. And yet, if God calls me home, I get more Christ. And it is gain. It's a both and. Related to that, I want to think rightly about the death of a Christ follower. It's the Lord who says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. We don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. You see, when a believer in Jesus Christ goes home, and I conduct the homegoing service I often say it is right for us to grieve. We grieve for our loss. We grieve for our separation. But we don't grieve regardless of age. We don't grieve for the believer who has gone home to glory. It's all gain. That's why God says in Psalm 116, 15, and 16, he says this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When someone who knows Jesus goes home to glory, we need to rejoice for her, for him. Because God says, this is precious. They've made it. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they've made it. This is the crowning moment for all of eternity. And so I want to rightly think about death. It's right to grieve my loss, your loss. But if it's a believer in Jesus, we also rejoice that she, he is home. Finally, I think of Paul's first part of that phrase, for me to live is Christ. As long as I'm here on earth, I've got to live for Christ. You've got to live for Christ. Some of you do an incredible job. Thank you for the model you set for me. What is living for Christ like? Well, it's spending time in prayer, right? It's spending time in the Word. Thank you for for several hundreds of families that are reading through Philippians several times a week. You're in the Word. I got an email from one family that said, for the first time in our, our entire lives, we're having family devotions. Yes, big win. I love it. I love it. What does it mean for me to live is Christ? It means that because I'm on earth, There's a missionary that I'm praying for that's being surrounded by prayer. For me to live in Christ means that maybe there's a shut-in that is going to be called who maybe I'll send a card to, maybe I'll go get some groceries for, that I will have an impact on her life, his life. For me to live as Christ means that some of the resources that the Lord has entrusted to me, I graciously give back, I rightly give back to the Father of lights from whom all gifts come. What does it mean to live for Christ? It means that in a post-COVID-19 world, I'm going to find places in the church and outside the church where I am regularly serving, where I am spending myself for the kingdom to advance the kingdom. For me to live is Christ. It's advantage for the kingdom of Christ. And I want to make sure that's true. Thank you for so many of you 
that have modeled that so well for so many years. Great will be your eternal reward. I close with this pre-COVID-19 story. It's of a pastor who was at the door after the service and a young man came up. He hadn't seen this this 20-something before and he enthusiastically greeted him and he said, son, are you a part of the Lord's army? And the young guy stammered a minute and then said, "Uh, yeah, 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 I'm a part of the Lord's army. Are you new in the area? No, I've been around. This is my church. Oh, said the pastor, taken back because he hadn't seen this guy. He said, then, if you're part of the army, why don't I see you a little bit more often? And the guy stammered for a few minutes and said, well, I am part of the army, but I'm part of the secret service. That cannot be true in my life. I trust it isn't true in your life. With Paul, we want to say, for me to live is Christ. It's the advantage of the kingdom of Christ. And I want to think rightly about when God calls me home. It's going to be gain. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Father God, help us to live as long as you give us here on earth. To spend our days for your kingdom. To advance your kingdom. To make your kingdom the priority. Not our sports not our recreation, not our education, not our job, not our finances, not even our families. Some of these are very high priorities, Lord. We acknowledge that. But even more than that, make your kingdom our priority. And Father, help us to love this earth and the people of this earth and to serve you on this earth but also to rightly view when you naturally call us home, if we know Jesus, to believe that it's all gain. Help us to live rightly during COVID-19 and afterwards for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.